for our, our time then this evening, let us return to that portion of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. We're going to look at that section there from verses 13 to 28. Verses 13 to 28 of Matthew 16. But if you're looking for a text, really, they would be verses 21 or 22 and 23. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. This incident is recorded also in um, Mark's Gospel, but we have a fuller treatment here in Matthew's Gospel. The title I want to give to our meditation this evening is From Blessing to Rebuke. From Blessing to Rebuke. Because that is exactly what happened here. Peter made a confession and the Lord acknowledged it. And then Peter tried to interfere with the will of God, and he got a, a sharp rebuke from the Savior. So the title is From Blessing to Rebuke. There are four brief headings that I wish to draw to your attention tonight from that section that we're going to highlight. We have Confession, we have here clarity, we have here the confrontation, and finally we will have the conclusion. So these four things that we want to look at uh, this evening, seeking the Lord's blessing and the Lord's help. First of all then, the confession, something possibly we're all very familiar with. Verse 16, after Jesus had asked a general question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 13, some say thou art John the Baptist, that is John the Baptist raised from the dead, because by this time John the Baptist was indeed dead. Some Elias, that's Elijah the prophet, and others Jeremiah, another prophet, or simply one of the prophets. So there we have a, a summary of what the people round about were saying concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been ministering for some, some time and the people had heard about him or heard him and the disciples had heard various reactions. But then the Lord Jesus presses upon them a very personal question. And it's a very apt and appropriate question for every single one of us. In verse 15, But whom say ye that I am? Here the Lord Jesus Christ is getting extremely personal with his apostles. Okay, you've told me what other people are saying about me. Now, you've been with me for some time. What is your verdict? What do you say? about me. Who am I in your eyes? 
And Peter then offers this noble confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this question was not uh, addressed only to Peter. It's quite clear, but whom say ye that I am? He says, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Therefore he's addressing the 12 apostles. But Peter being uh, the spokesman, he answered on behalf of himself and behalf of the others. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this receives obviously the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Peter had answered correctly, as Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now we want to be careful what we say here, but we also do not want to not to say what we're going to say. And what this clearly, clearly reveals to us, no amount of reading, no amount of teaching, no amount of preaching, no amount of Bibles, whatever versions we might have, or books, can bring this about. Jesus says quite clearly, Flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Now, these men had been with the Lord Jesus Christ. They had seen him ministering. They had seen him perform miracles. They had heard his doctrine. They had heard him arguing with the the scribes and the Pharisees and such like, they had been with them intimately for a period of time. And all of these things were instrumental in coming them to the correct conclusion that this was no ordinary individual before them. This was indeed the Messiah. This was indeed the Son of God. This is the one who has come from heaven. This is the one who has been promised in the scriptures. And this is the one that's before us. This is indeed God's son. And that was revealed to them through these things that they were dealing here and speaking with the very son of God. This was revealed to them from heaven. Now, this is a wonderful confession. This is a great confession of faith. What about ourselves this evening, friends? Many people will accept Jesus and they will acknowledge Jesus up to a certain point and to a certain extent. They will accept him as a, a great healer or a great example to follow or a great teacher, and indeed there is no teacher like unto Jesus Christ. And it is true that if the world followed the teachings of the Lord Jesus, as we might say outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, this world would be transformed. But we say it with reverence and we say it with respect, that that can never happen. 
until people recognize that this indeed is the Son of God. And they must acknowledge that he is God in the flesh. So what about ourselves? Can we subscribe to this confession? Can we say amen to this? Well, the disciples could. And they received the accolade of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was a wonderful confession. It was a wonderful confession in the light of the fact that the religious leaders of the day would not acknowledge that this was the Son of God. Instead, some would attribute what he did to the works of Satan, that he was in some sense in league with Satan. This was a wonderful and a glorious confession. And this is the confession of all his people, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, firstly then, the confession. Secondly, the clarity. I want to highlight there verse 21, because it says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. This is the point when Jesus made it abundantly clear to his disciples what lay ahead. It is true. For instance, you could just briefly turn to verse 4, that he hinted about this. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. There he's talking about himself. And there is a, a veiled remark or a veiled comment about what was going to happen, the sign of the prophet Jonas. And of course that sign would be fulfilled in the fact that he went to the grave and on the third day he rose again. But here we have wonderful clarity to the disciples. He made it crystal clear and plain to them that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die. Now, we're all very familiar with this, but if we put ourselves back 2,000 years ago, and if we kind of adopt the mindset of the apostles, we would try to get into their mindset, and we might try to be sympathetic and understand the difficulties that they had. They were Jews, and uh, all the days of their life, all their religious education, would tell them that when the Messiah would come, he would be a great, illustrious king. He would even exceed King, king David and King Solomon. And that was the times when Israel was at its strongest. Well, the Messiah was going to come according to them, and he was going to restore Israel, and Israel would be a great nation again, and Israel would rule over the Gentiles. And then for the Lord Jesus Christ to tell them 
Yet he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. But this Messiah was going to be cut off. And he goes on to describe something about it that would really be for them so difficult to embrace and to grasp and to comprehend. What does it say? How that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, to the Jews, the Jerusalem was the very center of the earth. This was, this was the place where God was. This was, this was God's city. This was a wonderful place in the sight of the Jews, and they had always been taught about it. This was God's city. This was the city that God had chosen to reveal himself in. And he was the Messiah saying, he was going to go to the very city of God, and he was going to be cut off. And not only that, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes. Here was something else that was a real stumbling block to them. What was it? Well, the very leaders, the people that they looked up to, the people that would give them all their religious education, the people who had power and authority in Jerusalem were going to take the Messiah and they were going to crucify him. This was just overpowering for them. And more and suffer many things. Now, they had no conception of this at all. Nothing whatsoever. But Jesus now believed that they were at the stage when they must know this. And maybe you can see a progression. They said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was true. And they had, they had come to that realization. And now maybe the Lord Jesus Christ was going to feed them some more information about himself. He had told them about himself. And now he was going to tell them about his work. It was, if you like, precept by precept, line by line. He was feeding them the truth in stages. And surely that is what he does with his people. I believe most of us here would profess to be Christians. None of us knows everything. Some will know more than others. We must, of course, know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is very foundational doctrine. And we must grasp and realize that truth and believe that truth. And then there's other things we have to learn. We have learned about his person. And there's much more we have to learn about his person. He teaches them here about his work. We must know more about his work also. We're not going to learn all of these things instantly at once. And every one of us will grow in stages. We won't all develop exactly at the same time. But the Savior acting here as our great prophet, revealing the word of God for our salvation, he will teach us. This is, this is part of his ministry. And this is what we find here. And of course, as you know, as you go through the Gospels, he would have to repeat this. He would have to repeat it. They wouldn't take it in and be killed, it says. 
and be raised again the third day. There was a sense of encouragement there. Yes, he was going to go to Jerusalem. Yes, he was going to be rejected by the leaders of the nation. Yes, he was going to suffer many things. He was ultimately going to be killed, but he was going to rise again on the third day. This was a lot for them to embrace, and they couldn't embrace it. Nevertheless, it was presented to them. Surely, friends, this is a sense of an encouragement for us. There's so much in the Word of God. If we've got any kind of an enthusiasm for the Word of God, we want to learn. And maybe um, we are somewhat frustrated. We don't think we're learning fast enough. We stick with Jesus. He will lead us. He will guide us. He will take us into all truth. He will reveal the Word of God to us. We have to be persistent and consistent and follow Him. And He will reveal all that is necessary for us, for our salvation. Well, clarity. Thirdly, we have uh, really the main part here, the confrontation. And that's our text. I won't reread it, but verses 22 and 23. Here we have Jesus revealing what is going to happen to him. Peter, it would seem, was walking behind the Savior. And he began to rebuke him. We need to stop and we need to read these words maybe again and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine it, friends? The apostle, with all his frailties, rebuking the Son of God, rebuking the very Christ of God, the one who is God's Son, the one who comes with the full authority and approval of heaven. Here the, the apostle begins to rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Maybe we can't be certain. Maybe Peter was somewhat puffed up when Jesus acknowledged his confession. Maybe that's the case. We're not going to accuse him. We're not going to scold him because as, as we have said on many other occasions, we very often walk in the footsteps of Peter. We can take, we can take the confession, we agree with the confession, but then when the Word of God speaks to us, we rebuke the Savior when we don't obey it. And this is what he, this is what Peter wanted the Son of God to do, was to turn his back upon the Word of God. That was a confrontation. And Peter seemed to be walking behind him because verse 23, what does it say? But he turned, the Lord turned. And the Lord didn't engage in any conversation with Peter whatsoever. He didn't argue, he didn't explain. He just says quite simply, get thee behind me, Satan. You see, the Lord could see through what was happening. Here was Satan using an apostle and seeking to deter and to detract the Lord Jesus Christ from going to Jerusalem 
and from going to Calvary and undertaking all that God had foreordained for him. There are lessons here. Satan is real. We can talk about these things and we can get lost, if you like, in, in demons and all of these kind of things. And it might seem very spiritual to talk about it, but the reality is there is a real evil spirit, Satan, and he is at work. And we cannot deny it. We might see it in the events of the world, but friends, we can also see it within our own lives and our own activities and, and the things that we get involved in. As a congregation, we must be careful. None of us are being in any sense smug or, or in any sense complacent. But the Lord does seem to be working among us. Oh, we wish it was more. And I don't think that's our wrong wish. We wish it was more. We wish more people would come. But we have to acknowledge that the Lord is in some sense working among us and we are delighted. Well, if you agree with that, if you agree with that, then you must also agree that when the Lord works, the evil one follows. He's a great imposter and he will follow on and he will try to undo the good that's been going on. Christian, you must be aware of him. He is wicked. He is cunning. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the last thing he wants to do is to see a church in some sense growing and people getting on with one another and being showing Christian love and care and concern for one another. This is what the evil one hates. And as we see it here, here's a genuine Christian, Peter, with all his faults and all his failings, he's a real Christian. He's an apostle. And Satan uses him. Let us be aware of that evil one. And let us take the same attitude as the Savior. Get thee behind me. This is what Jesus did when he had this temptation away back in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. What was, what was he saying? What was the devil saying to Jesus? Don't go the way of the cross. Don't follow God. Follow me, worship me, and you'll get everything anyway. What did Jesus say? Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence. Exactly the same, is it not? Get out of my sight. I don't want anything to do with you. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That's the way to deal with him. And he will use our nearest and our dearest. 
to work in us, to bring about confusion, to bring about chaos, to bring about bitterness, to bring about separation. Is that not what he did with Eve? Did he not attack the weaker vessel? Oh, you can hear the feminist up in fury over that. Well, we don't care. The Bible says that women are the weaker vessels. Satan knows that. He attacks Eve. She succumbs. Adam's not to be excused, but he disobeyed. And well, we are where we are because of that. Did he not do the same for Job? Did not Satan talk, attack his wife? Curse God and die, she says. Job wouldn't. So Satan, yes, he has evil people and he has evil demons and they will do evil things. But Satan can masquerade himself as an angel of light. And he can work among the brethren. He can work among the children of God. Let none of us think it is beyond us. Peter, well-intentioned individual here, he loved his Savior. He didn't want the Savior to go to the cross. We can understand that. But what he wanted the Savior to do was to disobey the Word of God. If anyone is telling you to disobey the Word of God, that's Satan. This is what we are to obey. It's the Word of God. And if you are disobeying the Word of God, then you're being used of Satan. This is our rule. This is what we must follow. God has revealed his word, will for us in his word. And if we're living or thinking contrary to this, then the evil one is at work. And Christ would not entertain him or in any sense engage with him. Away! Peter actually here, his request, if it had been granted, Peter would be asking for his own eternal damnation and the damnation of the whole of the human race because Christ had to go to Calvary. He had to go. And we wouldn't be here today. And we wouldn't be preaching a gospel. And we wouldn't be telling people to come to the Lord Jesus. We would be telling there's no hope. You might as well live like the world. You might as well get drunk every Friday and Saturday at night. You might as well inject drugs. You might as well en engage in all kinds of uncleanness. You might as well fight. You might as well steal, you might as well rob, you might as well do all of these things because it doesn't matter, you're all heading towards hell. If Peter's request had been granted. But we bless God it wasn't. 
And we bless God that the Son of God had the spiritual perception to see that this was the mouthpiece of Satan himself. He sought to hinder Christ in the very work that he came to do. That's what it means there. For thou art an offense unto me. You're offensive. I have a task. I have a duty. I have a plan. I have a purpose. And you want to take me from it. As Matthew Henry says, he came into the world, that is Christ, not to spare himself, as Peter advised, but to spend himself. Oh, there's a lesson there for us, friends. Let us not get distracted. Let the minister not get distracted. Let him not get tied up in administration and committees and all of these kind of things. Let the minister be a man who reads the word of God, who prays and who knows temptation, and who will then come forth and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to his people. Let him be a man of God, and for the private Christian, you must be involved in the main things of our faith. You must live the Christian life, and you cannot be distracted. And the devil would have you be distracted. He doesn't want you to live a holy life. He doesn't want you to live like the Christian. No, he's quite happy if you live like the world, if you compromise. No, we are to be full-blooded Christians. That's what he wants us to be. Well, thirdly then, that was the confrontation. Finally, the conclusion. I will really find this in verses 24 to 28, which I'm not going to reread. But Jesus being, if you like, a master preacher, he takes that occasion and he applies it to them for their edification. Oh, he has rebuked Peter, but it's over. He's dealt with it. Now he's moving on and he's going to, he's going to encourage them and he's going to draw lessons from it for their everyday walk with the Lord. And these verses really are telling us that as Jesus Christ was going to give his life for his people, so his disciples, his apostles, and us who follow after him, we must in some sense be like the Savior and lose our lives. It's not talking about going to the cross, but it is telling us that we are to dedicate ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ so that in reality we lose the life that we have and we follow him. He was going to Calvary. He was going to suffer like no one else would suffer. He was going to make atonement for sins and he was going to lose his life. And he says to his people, to his disciples, exactly the same thing is going to happen to you. And we have here a number of contrasts and I'm going to be very quick. But basically he says, deny yourself. 
you have two sort of points of view running through these verses. You have what Christ would have us do, and you have what the world would have us do. And Jesus says, deny yourself. What does the world say? Live for yourself. That's what they say. Get the most out of this world. Jesus says, deny yourself. Jesus says, take up your cross. The world says, ignore the cross. You don't want to get involved in the cross. The cross is repugnant. Friends, the cross is the heartbeat of the gospel. And without the cross, there is no gospel. Jesus says, follow Christ. Follow him. Walk in his footsteps. What does the world say? Follow the world. Jesus says, lose your life for his sake. The world says, save your life for your own sake. Jesus says, keep your soul. Keep your soul. The world says, lose your soul. Jesus says, share in his reward and glory. That's what he ends with. His reward and glory. The world says, lose his glory and reward. There's a choice then. Here's the conclusion. Here's Jesus drawing real practical lessons from that confrontation for them to walk in his footstep and to deny themselves and not to live for themselves or for the world. And it's exactly the same for ourselves today. Nothing's changed. It's the same old evil world. We're not to love it. We're in it. We've got to live in it, but we're not of it if we're truly Christians. Confession, clarity, confrontation, and conclusion from blessing to rebuke.